Well, it's another one, down the gutter one, troublesome, got us feeling double dumb, like a hand with no thumb, there goes momentum, senses kinda numb, bond yields flying, tech stocks crying, Fed's still trying, but no one's buying what they've been implying, higher for longer, inflation still stronger than we might expect, yo, get the check, but don't hit the deck when you see those prices, did you hear about the China crisis? Too much construction, credit destruction, banks filing for protection, another liquidity injection from the PBOC, thanks to President Xi, China's economy is one big mystery. Is there going to be contagion, another bear invasion? This requires examination, research, and test prep. Climb aboard the express, but please, watch your step. Welcome back and welcome aboard and do indeed watch your step. Both stocks and bonds slipped last week as investors had trouble digesting more strong economic data and the minutes from the latest Fed meeting reiterating that the fight against inflation is not over. That could mean another rate hike in September or at the very least rates at this level for longer. The benchmark 10-year U.S. Treasury yield spiked to 4.3%, its highest level since November of 2007, right in the teeth of the great financial crisis. That put the scare into stocks and risk assets like Bitcoin. Tech stocks took it on the chin with the high-flying FANG Plus Index, that's your largest tech stocks by market cap, including Apple, NVIDIA, Tesla, Alphabet, and Meta, fell into a correction last week, down 11% since July 18th. We're going to go deep into that sector with Dan Ives in a few minutes. As those stocks go, so goes the market. The S&P 500 dropped 2.1% to its lowest level in nearly eight weeks. The Dow Jones fell 2.2% for its biggest weekly loss since March, and the Nasdaq Composite slid 2.6% to a 10-week low. Since July 1st, just a couple of days after the Fed raised rates to their highest levels in 22 years, the S&P 500 has tumbled 4.7%, while the Nasdaq has slid 7.3%. Now, who's responsible? I say, who's responsible for this unwarranted attack on my person? Take it easy, Foghorn. It's not personal. Still, those growth stocks are extra sensitive to rising interest rates and bond yields. And while a lot of investors may have thought both would be drifting lower by now, that's just not the case. And the technicals inside the stock market are deteriorating quickly. The S&P 500 closed below its 50-day moving average for the first time in more than four months last week. Now, pullbacks like this, especially in the middle of a pretty strong rally, are a feature of the stock market not a bug. The average year sees more than three separate 5% corrections. Right now, the S&P 500 is down 4.8% from its late July peak, so we're getting pretty close to that second 5% pullback so far this year. And that dip below the 50-day moving average? It's kind of normal too, believe it or not, and historically it turns around later in the year. As our pal Ryan Dietrich points out, since 1990, when stocks reverse like they just did and experience one of those 5% pullbacks, they usually reverse again and churn higher a month later and stay higher a year later, up 14% on average, eight out of the last nine times. Does that mean it's going to happen again like that this time? No one knows. And that's the tug of war that's playing out inside the stock market right now, which leads us straight into our big three for the week. Number one. On the one side of the pit are the optimists. That includes individual investors like us. Remember, our latest sentiment survey showed that we are as bullish as we've been all year. Same for the American Association of Individual Investors. Bulls outnumber bears at the highest levels all year. And the pros are also getting their bull on. B of A's latest global fund manager survey is the least bearish it's been since February of last year. And with bond yields spiking, the equity risk premium, which measures the excess return that investing in the stock market provides over a risk-free rate like the 10-year treasury, that's at a 19-year low. 
It's very low, in fact, when compared to other periods when the market felt kind of frothy, like 1999 before the dot-com bubble burst. On the other side of the pit, the bears are getting really hungry. The equity put-to-call ratio, which measures the volume of bearish bets against the stock market over bullish bets, it's at its highest level since Silicon Valley Bank collapsed last spring. If stocks keep slipping over the next few weeks, those bearish bets are going to pile up and bullish sentiment could get buried. Investors are always a little late to the party and they always leave a little too early. Number two, and then there's China. The world's second economy is facing a steep reckoning in its real estate market. If you've traveled through China in the past 10 years, you know what I'm talking about. New construction is a staple of the Chinese economy and accounts for nearly one quarter of the country's GDP. Take the bullet train from Beijing to Shanghai and you're going to see hundreds of new apartment complexes sprouting up out of soybean farmland, ready for millions of new tenants who were supposed to move towards these mega city centers from the rural provinces. That hasn't exactly played out, and housing prices and investment are collapsing in China, taking down lenders and developers with them. China Evergrande, one of the country's largest and most indebted real estate developers with over $300 billion in liabilities, just filed for Chapter 15 protection under the U.S. Bankruptcy Code. Chapter 15 shields non-U.S. companies from its creditors as they undergo a restructuring. This follows Evergrande's 2021 liquidity crisis when the Chinese government tried to rein in speculation. That came too late, and things have not turned around given China's tight COVID restrictions over the past two years. Other Chinese property developers, like Country Garden, just missed a debt payment, and now there's a fear that the property crisis may spread contagion from the private market in China to the government-backed public entities. China's Hang Seng Index is in a bear market, and after a series of disappointing economic releases, China's central bank, the PBOC, stepped in to raise the value of the yuan against other major currencies. They can do that in China, and they'll do whatever it takes to keep the engine running in that country, like cutting interest rates as the rest of the developed world has been raising them. This could get very tricky. And number three, U.S. lawmakers are playing their own little game of chicken again as the country faces a potential government shutdown come October 1st. Stop me if you've heard this one before, but here we go again. Congress and the Biden administration have until September 30th to avoid a government shutdown. That's when the federal fiscal year ends. But standing in the way are 12 appropriations bills that need to get passed. Each of these bills funds a different part of the federal government. Usually, some or all those bills are rolled together into a single omnibus package and approved together. But in his bid to become Speaker of the House, Representative Kevin McCarthy promised conservative members of the Republican Party that the House would deal with each of these spending bills individually. So far, none of them have passed the House or the full Senate. Now, why do we even go through this every year? Well, you have to take it all the way back to 1884 when Congress passed the Anti-Deficiency Act. It's been amended a few times, most recently in 1950, but it basically stipulates that federal agencies cannot spend or obligate any money without congressional approval. If and when Congress fails to enact those appropriation bills, federal agencies must cease all non-essential functions, which is a government shutdown. And we've been through a few of these. In 1995 and 1996, President Clinton and the Republican Congress were unable to agree on spending levels. The government shut down twice for a total of 26 days. In 2013, a standup over funding for the Affordable Care Act resulted in a 16-day shutdown. And in December of 2018, which lasted all the way through January of 2019, a dispute over border funding led to a shutdown that lasted 35 days. Now, Congress can pass what's called a continuing resolution, or a CR as it's known on the Beltway. That just buys some time to keep negotiating while keeping the government running. CRs happen all the time, and Representative McCarthy and Democratic leaders are proposing to do that now. 
But what happens if they don't pass a continuing resolution? Well, a lot of what are considered non-essential government employees are told not to report to work. They are essentially furloughed and won't get paid until Congress ends the shutdown. Essential government workers like air traffic controllers and law enforcement will continue to work and get paid. Benefits like Social Security and Medicare continue to get paid, but possibly delayed. Those payments are authorized by Congress in laws that do not need annual approval. The Treasury can also continue to pay interest on U.S. Treasury debt on time. But other government services like processing applications for passports, small business loans, food safety inspections, and national park services will be closed. While none of those have the capacity to tip the U.S. economy over, cumulatively, they can add up to serious economic headwinds at a time when the country is facing a lot of other challenges. That Fitch credit rating downgrade from a few weeks ago starts to make a lot more sense viewed through this lens. If Moody's and Standard & Poor's follow suit, beware of streaking bond yield. Let's get set up for the week ahead. And this week, we're going to get the final big wave of earnings reports from several widely held and followed companies. But first, it's been no country for earnings beats. According to the good folks at FactSet, the second quarter of 2023 has experienced a cumulative earnings decline for the S&P 500 of 5.2%. That's the biggest drop since the third quarter of 2020. 49 companies have guided lower and only 30 companies have guided higher. And even in the case of those earnings beats, investors have not rewarded those companies. Stocks that beat earnings per share estimates have fallen a half a percentage point on average the day after their positive earnings report. This week, we're going to get results from major retailers, including Lowe's, Macy's, Kohl's, Nordstrom, Dollar Tree, Dick's Sporting Goods, Urban Outfitters, and BJ Wholesale Club, among others. On the tech front, we're going to hear results from Zoom Video Communications and NVIDIA. Shares of NVIDIA are up nearly 200% so far this year on optimism around the company's chip making for artificial intelligence programming. That bar is very high. On Tuesday, the National Association of Realtors will report existing home sales for July, and we should expect to see a slight decline from June when 4.16 million homes were sold. Existing home sales have been falling for the past 14 months amid rising mortgage rates. The rate on the 30-year fixed mortgage, the most popular home borrowing product out there, hit a 21-year high last week, north of 7%, and 8% may be in sight if the Fed raises rates again come this September. Fed officials and economists in fleece jackets are headed out to Jackson Hole, Wyoming for their annual retreat. Think fly fishing, mountain biking, and monetary policy discussions around a giant fireplace. I've been to that retreat up there in the Tetons, and it is quite nice. Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell will make some remarks, but as usual, he's expected to stay on script and reiterate that the battle to bring down inflation, quote, has a long way to go. After steaming into the year and driving piping hot gains, tech and software stocks have cooled off in the past weeks, bringing the temperature of the entire stock market down with them. These are the giants, the Apples, the Microsofts, the Teslas, the Salesforce, the Palantirs. They're among the most dominant companies in the technology sector that have transformed the way we work, the way we play, the way we drive, and the data we produce. They are also among the most widely held and followed stocks across global markets and have driven trillions of dollars worth of shareholder value in the past decade. There's a lot riding on them, and no one follows them more closely than Dan Ives. He's a managing director and senior equity research analyst at Weedbush Securities, and has been covering all things tech and software for the past 20 years, and he is our very special guest this week on the Investopedia Express. Dan, we are big fans. So good to have you on the show. Yeah, great to be here. Thanks for having me. Let's go big picture, and then we're going to talk about a few stocks that you cover. And 
folks out there. Full disclosure, Dan is a pro. He is an analyst. He rates and recommends companies, but you got to do your own research and evaluate your own risk parameters before you make your own investment decisions. We are here to learn from Dan, and he is one of the best in the industry. So let's look at the overall tech and software sector right now, given what we know and what we don't, Dan. Is this a pullback, a reaction to the Fed's continued hawkishness, a pullback from overbought conditions, concerns about the AI bubble, or yes, and a lot more? I mean, in my opinion, I view it as more, it's a 10-year driven pullback, right? I think everyone's getting worried. It's a 2022 sort of groundhog day. In my opinion, after tech being obviously just massively strong this year, it's temporary. I am a true believer we are in the early innings of a tech bull market, of the new one that started. I think AI is the biggest transformational theme that we've seen since 1995, since the start of the internet. So I'm just a believer, you know, our view is macro aware, micro obsessed in terms of how we do things and how we've always done it. And in terms of the tech themes, I believe this is one that's going to be a more short-lived pullback rather than the start of some sort of broader sell-off. Does a lot of this have to do with the fact that Again, we may be in the beginning of a new era of tech, a new bull market, as you say, but also so many investors, whether it's institutional or retail or hedge funds or sovereign funds, are so invested in the technology sector as well. There is just so much, as I said, riding on it. And this is where a lot of people believe the future of growth is. So size matters and big things kind of stay big. One also more, you can't even invest in China tech. So I could tell you like globally, in my time in, in Asia, Middle East, more and more of that money is going from Asia, going from China tech to US tech. I think that's another dynamic that's happening as well. Look, I think really what's starting here is the bears are just going to continue to focus on the black swans, the Fed higher for longer. I, and I get it. But when I look from a tech spending perspective, cloud, AI, chips, software, I look at the next 18, 24 months as the start of of a new cycle. And I think that continues to be our thesis. And that's why I think we came into this year so bullish on tech, because I'm just not a believer that we're just going to sit here and the Fed's going to continue to raise rates. I believe, you know, going to next year, you're going to start to get cuts. And, and I think it's a risk on environment. You've written a lot about AI and its profound impact on the companies that are using it well. You even called Palantir the Lionel Messi of AI in a recent note. So Obviously, there's a lot of hype around it, but there is some real depth, some real protein to it. So how are companies like Palantir using it so effectively? And why do you think that's so transformative? I think Palantir is probably the best pure play AI name out there. Even from just from a pure business model perspective, what Carp and the team have built clearly, obviously on Federal and Beltway, where they've had their success, they built and now everyone's coming. So my view is that they're going to be able to parlay more and more of that success into enterprise with AIP that I view as a game changer. Now, many will, like, let's say with a Palantir, and you've obviously seen it even in the sell-off here with downdraft. This is not a call for a quarter. And, it was like, and that's how, for anyone that's following me, I mean, we kind of pick our themes, pick the winners, and ultimately, I, I view the transformational growth themes you can't just put in a little box saying what the PE is next year. You wouldn't miss out on Netflix, Tesla, Amazon, Microsoft, Apple, and everything else. I view Palantir kind of in that category in terms of where I could ultimately seeing it down the road, you know, 40, 50 billion market. 
So we mentioned Messi earlier. Beyond being one of the greatest footballers of all time, he's a key character in the Apple ecosystem on a number of levels. First, there was the deal that sent him to the MLS, Inter-Miami. How did he influence that? And how is he sort of core to what you're seeing within Apple and what you've just recently written about with Apple and potentially ESPN? Well, I think Apple, they have a massive appetite, unprecedented for live sports content. I think Coach Cupertino recognizes there's a window here more and more going when you talk about linear to streaming. And when you look at what Amazon's done with some of the NFL packages, look, Apple's missed out. Pac-12 came and gone. Obviously, there was a deal there that ultimately fell apart. You know, those schools went to Big Ten, Big 12. Messi MLS, that's a 10-year deal. Apple obviously played an instrumental role in terms of Messi ultimately coming to Inter-Miami. This just shows the massive success they're seeing on MLS subscriptions. It's live sports content. I mean, that is what's going to drive the Ted Lasso's and some of the Academy Awards they've won. That's great. Live sports is what's going to drive it, which is, what, in my opinion, the marriage that makes sense. Walking down the aisle, it's Apple and Disney. It's Cook Iger. It's ultimately what I view as Apple buying ESPN. Yeah, those companies are close and have been close for a while. I think Iger was on the Apple board if he's still not anymore. So Apple in the content game like never before and trying to get bigger through sports. We know Amazon has done that as well. We know Alphabet has done that as well through YouTube. Sports is that holy grail. These are the things that people watch by appointment and are willing to pay for. Is that part of the whole ecosystem, the subscription ecosystem that Apple needs to keep growing? It's the unparalleled install base, which is why, look, I could tell you just over the decades, you know, with Apple, you know, many will always push back on the thesis. Ah, it's, it's hardware. It's, it's a cycle here and there. Why do you pay more than 12 to 15 times earnings? Because I, I think you missed the story just like you missed Tesla. In other words, it's about the install base monetizing. It's unparalleled. It's what, if you go back to BlackBerry, Go back to Nokia, they had the number, but they never able to monetize in services. Never able to monetize another product. That, that is the key for Apple and services. Look, by next year, we're turning 100 billion annually. I think a big part of the re rating in Apple is services. This is just further fuels them. Now, look, biggest acquisition company's ever done beats 3 billion plus. This would probably be a 40, 50 billion dollar type deal. But my view is at a minimum, it's going to be a distribution partnership. And potentially, when you go further out, you know, this could be an acquisition. Yeah, Disney's Bob Iger has talked publicly about maybe getting rid of some of those broadcast assets. He hasn't mentioned ESPN yet, but he's sort of uh, dangled it out there potentially. And ABC, of course, is a big part of that as well. And let's just talk about the overall Apple ecosystem, right? It's close to a $3 trillion market cap there or about. So when people say, how can it continue to grow and expand margins and deliver for investors like it has over the past more than a decade, is this what you see just adding these services, doing more for its install base, which continues to grow? What's that? And then I think eventually you're going to have an AI app store by 2025, a separate app store that will be AI fitness, health, more and more developers are going to build on that. That's going to be another monetization for services. We believe Apple Car by 2026, where they're going to partner with an OEM. And then ultimately, it's just going to be further mining the install base. And I think that's something where in the story, a lot of times we're like valuation, it's run, it seems ridiculous. I think you got to view it some of the parts. It's the same way that I think you got to view Tesla. 
You got to do Amazon. You got to do Google. In my opinion, I feel like some of the parts are the best ways to view transformational growth names. Well, you mentioned Tesla. You cover tech and you cover software. Tesla is a car company and an EV company, but it's really also a technology and a software company. And it's been an unbelievable stock, but you've had to have a very strong stomach to hold it over the past 10 years, but you've done very well if you did. Lately, though, it's having to put on heavy discounts to move units. Still dominant in a space, though, that has a lot of room to grow. What does Elon Musk need to do to keep this growth story on track and to keep providing shareholder returns for Tesla's investors? But I think that's the right strategy, cutting prices for units, for volumes. I mean, right now, it's a Game of Thrones-ish battle in China. I think 95% of the price cuts in the rearview mirror, but I think that's really the golden goose. In terms of going after units, I think margins start to trough the next quarter or two. Volumes to me look pretty firm, 1.8, 1.9 million units. And then you have Cybertruck, and then you have battery technology, 4680, and more and more scale globally. And you look at Supercharger, valuation of that was zero. Now, more and more, is it 100, 150 billion with Ford, GM, and others coming in? I think batteries could be next. And then eventually you look at FSDAI. So I think these are all things now playing out in the story. You also cover GM. This is a 115-year-old automaker, Dan, but you're, again, a tech analyst and software analyst. Why GM? And what does its EV tech-related future look like to you? I mean, I'm a view in GM. I mean, this is like a Microsoft or an IBM turnaround, but I think the opportunity is like with electric vehicles, can they convert 10, 15, 20% to electric vehicles? I mean, that's the big part that Mary and the team are going after. And in my opinion, that's why it's a turnaround story. Now, look, I'm not, if you look, it's not going to be easy. There's going to be a lot of bumps in the road. I think valuation will continue to be definitely a transitional story to some extent. But when you ultimately look, you got Ultium, you got the battery technology. I believe there could be a massive turnaround in the 313 area, but in my opinion. All right. You cover a wide range of companies. Folks, we're going to link to Dan's profile page to show you just how wide his coverage is. Give us a couple of stocks that we've never heard of, or just don't get that attention, the headline attention that could be big players soon. That might be household names. One. I think a name that's pretty super interesting is this name Telus, a federal play, focus a lot on black ops, cybersecurity. Just got this TSA deal, stocks, you know, I had a lot of headwinds. I think that's name as a pure cybersecurity federal name that that could be a pretty significant player. I think second, a turnaround name would be Pegasystems, tool-based developer company. I, I kind of view them as an under-the-radar AI play. I think valuation, risk reward, we find very attractive. They have a legal issue you know, in terms of a lawsuit that that's been a big overhang, but we continue to think a lot of that sort of baked in here. And probably a third name would be Soundtown in terms of an under the radar. I'll call that a speech based AI name, almost a mini nuance. You know, that, that was a SPAC. So obviously, you know, uh, coming out had uh, definitely clear headwinds, but I think fundamentally starting to turn the corner. All right, put those on your watch list, folks, and check them out. So you cover a wide range of stocks. You put out a lot of content. You're also on the media quite a bit. How do you get ready in the morning, Dan, as an analyst with this deep passion for tech and software? What are the first things you read when you get up in the morning? How do you start your day? I, mean, I start my day 
with Kona Coffee and probably going through Twitter for about 15, 20 minutes. My Twitter feed is something, I, and obviously you're someone that I focus on as well. Like, I feel like bulls, bear, if you look at my Twitter, I'm, I get a lot. That's how I start my morning in, in terms of just really trying to understand what happened overnight in Asia, you know, what the European markets are. Obviously, I read journals, CNBC, you know, CBS, Marketplace, uh, a ton of other sort of media. And I feel like in the first hour of the day, I wake up and I'm like, okay, I have a pretty good sense in terms of like narrative. At least for me, that's something where I'm even to, you know, traveling Europe the last few weeks, like I wake up first thing, Twitter. That's the first thing I'm looking at. Because to me, it's like, I feel like as long as you're feed is is really set well from a trading perspective and i fo- i focus on bears as well even during this downturn right this last three four weeks like okay let's get into the conspiracy the- and, you know what are these guys saying like you know obviously you really want to understand i think that 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 narrative i think it's always very important yeah situational awareness and if you follow the right people if you're just making sure you're learning, Twitter or X, as it's called now, can be a very good place. I use it all the time. All right. Give us a couple of hot takes for the rest of the year. Don't have to be stock picks. Just things on Dan's mind that could be hot, uh, that could play out, that nobody's really talking about or thinking about. Yeah. I mean, look, overall, I look, I'm a believer tech stocks are at 15% the rest of the year. Okay. So just from an overall perspective, I view this as a short-lived pullback. I get it. Everyone's obsessed with the 10-year Fed. Every speech they'll give at some random steakhouse in Cleveland, everyone's focused. I, I get that. I just going through and covering tech, what, 23 years, what you, you didn't own a Microsoft or Apple because of the Greek debt crisis in 2012. You know, that my view is like, I'm just not the whole black swan conspiracy. This is it. Second thing is, I think we're going to start to see, especially in software, a lot of MA. I think that's something that's a little under the radar. Could be a lot of strategic financial MA around cloud, cybersecurity. And third, in terms of just like another take, like I think Giants actually are going far in the playoffs. I think a Big Ten team is going to win that championship. Uh, I think it could be Penn State. Those are some of just my off takes here. I love those. And folks, we're going to check back on those to see which ones of those came true. We'll have Dan back on the program. Let's go out on this. You know, Investopedia is built on our investing dictionary. Would love to know your favorite term. What's your favorite finance or investing term? The one that just makes you happy. I'd probably say it would probably be something like garden variety. That's the one where, and I mean a kind of tongue in cheek. I think a lot of times that just tends to be something where like, I have no idea why this stock's selling off, but I'll just say it's garden variety. I love that. I love that too. Find it in aisle four and find Dan at Wedbush Securities. He's the managing director and senior equity research analyst there. A great follow, been following the tech industry for more than 20 years. I learned so much from reading your stuff, Dan, and it's a real pleasure to have you on the Express. No, thanks for having me on. Thanks for everyone for watching. It's terminology time, time for us to get smart with the investing term we need to know this week. And this week's term comes to us from MST90, who hit us up on Instagram suggesting the Sharpe Ratio. We love the Sharpe Ratio, and we talked about it last week with Rob Arnault. 
According to our favorite website, the Sharpe Ratio compares the return of an investment with its risk. It was named after the economist William F. Sharp, who in 1996 proposed it as an outgrowth of his work on the capital asset pricing model, calling it then the reward to variability ratio. Sharp won the Nobel Prize in Economics for his work on the capital asset pricing model, by the way. The Sharpe Ratio's numerator is the difference over time between realized or expected returns and a benchmark such as the risk-free rate of return or the performance of a particular investment category like government bonds. Its denominator is the standard deviation of returns over the same period of time, a measure of volatility and risk. Generally, the higher the Sharpe Ratio, the more attractive the risk-adjusted return. Great suggestion, MST90. We need to make indicators like the Sharpe Ratio part of our toolkit for measuring our own risk tolerance. We're going to let President Bill Clinton take us out this week. As mentioned earlier, Clinton was president during one of those government shutdowns we talked about earlier in the show. That shutdown from December 16, 1995 to January 6, 1996 lasted 21 days. And oddly enough, the political climate then was kind of similar to how it is today in the United States, a Democratic president and a Republican-controlled House battling over spending. Here's the former president talking about the unprecedented shutdown at a news conference on January 3rd, 1996, 18 days into the shutdown. Let me remind the American people that this shutdown is not caused by the fact that the congressional leaders and I have not yet reached agreement on a balanced budget plan or on all the appropriations for this year. In fact, it is part of an explicit strategy by Republicans to shut the government down to get their way on budget and tax issues. This has never been done before. But it has been done since. Let's just hope it doesn't happen again this fall. It's our 150th episode. Hard to believe, but we've been riding this train together for about three years now, and we are eternally grateful to you all for tuning in, writing in, sharing, and recommending the Investopedia Express. Thanks so much for riding along with us on this adventure. We appreciate you. If you're new to the show, there's a pretty deep library for you to explore with conversations with some of the smartest investors and personalities we can find. If you're a longtime rider of the Express, you have our gratitude. And we'll talk again a little further on down the line.